I want to first start with you introducing yourself and telling the people who you are. Then we go from there. Yeah, well, thank you very much, David. I appreciate your time and, and this wonderful opportunity. My name is Sibusiso Vilane. I am a South African. I am an African. I am a citizen of the world. Nelson Mandela told me to, 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 to introduce myself like that because he, he believed that we doesn't matter where we come from, we, we are global by nature. And, and as long as we are human beings, uh, so we belong, we belong anywhere. We, we feel like we want to belong. But I am Africa's greatest mountaineer adventurer. I've climbed many mountains in my life. I've done a lot of other adventures in my life, including walking to the South Pole unassisted and unsupported and getting to the North Pole. I've climbed the seven summits, which are the seven highest uh, peaks in each of the seven continents. I summited Mount Everest two times. I am an inspirational speaker by storytelling. I share with people my journey to starting from an ordinary game range, an ordinary African, to eventually standing up at the top of Mount Everest. So that is my sort of very brief intro. Thank you for having that me. Is, that, is, that is an impressive introduction. And it, that's such an amazing, I have so much question to, to ask you here. And I'm so honored and glad to have you uh, on the show. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you is like, what like what made you want to get into this before we even get into that i see i'm already like <laughs> excited <laughs> i'm already excited so let's go back let's let's start from the beginning how was it like growing up in south africa well thank you for asking that um growing up in i, I grew up in two countries first was rural south africa and then i moved on to rural swaziland which is now i think it was it was quite nice or was it a very lucky break for me to at a very young age leave south africa which we all know during my childhood it was still under apartheid and and black people were were undermined and and deprived of many resources so sensibly, when I was about three years old, my mother and my dad separated, which then prompted my mother, who was born Swazi, to then take me and my sister to Swaziland. So, but already at that age, I was already feeling that my sister and I were not like any other children. We looked very poor. We didn't have any clothes to wear. And the reason was that because my dad didn't really take full responsibility like any father's poor dad should have done anyway. He didn't really care much about that. That's why that's what prompted my mother to take me to Swaziland. And when we when I was about three years old, knowing what my name was, we were living with my grandmother. My mother had left, gone to the city to try and fend for us. And looking around other children, we realized that we were we were not like any other. We were a little bit different from them because they will have clothes and others were at school or preschool at that tender age. But when when I looked around, I realized that when I was about six years old, I wasn't just school like any other children were. And my sister and I were really struggling because my grandmother, who was then the sole provider for us at that stage, was trying to put up all her efforts to at least at the end of the day bring food at the table and i remember now that there were days where my sister and i 
would just go without food and, and we didn't we never we didn't have clothes to wear so people that would have seen us at that age i bet they would have said they would have felt pity and felt sorry and at the same time probably saying poor children they will amount to nothing because that that was that and and, and luckily my mother even though uneducated and unqualified for any job she had this vision in her mind to have her children get go to school so that was what she was trying to do when she went to the city to try and look for a job so she came back to check if my dad had come to to see us and my dad had never really bothered and at that stage People had looked at me and my sister and asked my grandmother if we could help them. And because of desperation, my grandmother allowed us to be used as, I wouldn't say child labor as per se, but people thought they don't have any, any anything anyway. They, they let them rather play out there looking after goats. And when I was seven and eight years, I was a little head boy. And my sister was also a babysitter at some some place in not too far from where we were and all of that was because they were paying my grandmother for for our services and we never we never really got to see how much we were paid uh, but we knew that she was getting something and she was taking that and trying to buy food for us and that lasted for at least maybe the about up until the age of nine then my mother came back and said, I'm taking my children with me because I want to send them to school. But but up until to that age, to answer that question, how was it like? It was very rough. It was very tough. And I think it is very disheartening when you grow up as a child and you look around, you can just tell that you are very different. Uh, the difference is that you don't have your mom and your dad living with you, and then you don't have a house that you can call your, your home. And, and then as such, it tends to play out openly that the other children would also treat you as such. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, we were we were very poor. But I think that that was the best grounding. When I look at it today, I think it sort of shaped the way I look at life and the way I take life and my life very seriously. It was just being exposed to scarcity, and then I thought at some stage of my life I was going to grow up and change all of that. But I cannot lie, it was very desperate. I think I don't think I would have thought that I was going to be the person I am today had I been asked at that stage, what do you see or what do you see yourself at your early 20s or late 40s or something? No, I won't because I didn't really know where I belonged. And, you know, you, you mentioned being exposed to scarcity. How did growing up like that, the way you grew up, how did that help how did that impact you? So, so that 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 hardship, that toughness, and the, and and that type of growing up made me to look around. I think I was very observant. I was looking around and realizing that other children were well off. They had their moms and their dads. They had three meals a day. They were at school. They wore the best clothing that they could possibly get, and they would celebrate festivities, be it their birthdays, be it Christmas, which my sister and I never did. So I realized that it was for us, we, we didn't even uh, enjoy all of those because we didn't have the means to, which then prompted me to say, at some point of my life, I will have to do those things myself. I would have to be responsible. And if I have children, I would want to provide for them. I would want to give them 
a home that a house that they call they, they will call their home i would want to send them to school when they are at the age where they should be at school so it sort of opened my thinking and i looked i looked forward to this stage where i would be able to take my my life into my hands and and, and turn my life into what i wanted it to be so it was just being aware of where i was and who i was that would then somehow channel me towards shaping my life for better. And I knew then at that moment, that was very clear to me that if anything was to change in my life for better or for worse, it was up to me. And it taught me at that very early stage to take full responsibility for what my life was going to be, take full responsibility of the results I would produce, either good or bad. I don't, I shouldn't blame anyone. And I think that helped me a lot because up until today, I don't play blame games. I take full responsibility for whatever results I do. If I made a decision and it backfires on me, I blame myself. I say it was your choice. So, so that gave me that. Whereas most of the of the children that I grew up with tends to blame either their parents, or it's my dad, or it was my mother, or it's my brother, or anything. No. I don't because I realized from a very, very young age that it was up to me to make things work or to not make things work. I couldn't say, ah, it's someone else's problem. It's mine. It's my life. Therefore, it has to be my problem. Now, fast forward to you climbing Everest. I just want you to kind of like paint like a picture. You're so good at describing things. So I just want you to kind of like set the stage of like what inspired you to want to climb uh, my Everest? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting, and it's another very interesting question when you look at it, Stephen, because up until the age of 26, because of the way I grew up, because of the desperate nature of wanting to get into a working environment, work and, and earn money so that I could be able to build that house for my children, and get married and then have children and then that was my main focus so i never really high i was never very interested or exposed to hiking or climbing when i was during that stage even when i started finishing high school i never really felt that i was an adventurous person in as much as we do want to believe that life itself is an adventure because it is it is anyway but I wasn't exposed to any outdoors. So as such, I never knew what hiking was, what climbing mountain was anyway. But I was working in a nature reserve in Swaziland when on a Saturday afternoon, a gentleman walked in. Uh, he was British named John Double. He walks into the reception. He had just arrived in Swaziland after spending four years in South Africa as the British High Commissioner. And he wanted to do a hike in the nature reserve where I was working but he didn't have any friends. So I overheard a conversation between him and my working colleague where he was asking if there were any groups of hikers that he could join on a weekend. And and my work colleague replied or answered him correctly by saying, well, we don't have that many hikers or group of hikers that we can probably introduce you to here because those that do, when they come here, they come with their own groups of friends. So somehow when I was hearing this conversation, I felt my instinct say, pay attention and listen. And then the next question that he asked was, 
are there any group, are there any young boys or guys that I can ask here? And the answer was no. So my instinct led me to say, I would be happy to take you on this hike. So I introduced myself to John and I said, yeah, I hear you would like to, to hike in this game reserve. I'm one of the game rangers here and I know the game reserve very well. If you are really serious about walking on a weekend, I would be happy to accompany you on a weekend when I'm off duty. So we sort of exchanged contacts. It was in 1996. I was 26 years old without having climbed any other mountain. But I was already, already obviously working in the nature reserves, which is outdoors anyway. But for us, it was work. You wouldn't think, you wouldn't look at it and say it was a holiday, as, as, as <laughs> other, other people came to spend time at the game reserve. For us, it was work. So on this other day, we had decided that I was going to take him along a very beautiful trail and I was acting guide. So I'm walking in the front, leading him, and we get to a beautiful waterfall. We'd come from the bottom part of this waterfall. And when we go to the bottom of it, he looked up and wanted to see if he can, if anyone was going to climb up to the top part of the waterfall to have a view from the top. So I said, yeah, well, we can do it. If we scramble around on the sides, provided we don't swim because I can't swim, um, we should be fine. And he said, well, I will follow you. And then we sort of, with caution and safety, I guided him up. It was like a 30 meter, 40 meter uh, scrambling on rocks. And we got to the top part of the waterfall and John said, um, my friend, you, you, you climb with such ease and you, with such agility and you don't show any fear. Um, you would have made a good climber, but this makes me wonder because I look at you, to, I think that there are many other Africans who have the same climbing ability, but there's no African who has climbed Everest since it was climbed in 1953. So I had to hold a, a little bit there, pause and try and think about Everest, like where, where was Everest really? I didn't seem to remember much about Everest. I didn't seem to remember much reading about it or learning about it. But I knew that Africa's highest mountain was Kilimanjaro. Therefore, Everest wasn't a mountain in Africa. It wasn't within mm -hmm. my continent. So I said to my friend, look, I don't think Africans can afford to travel overseas to climb a mountain because, I mean, there's so much that we need and we don't have those resources. And, and I thought that was it. I'd won this discussion, but John wasn't listening because before I knew it, he said to me, well, I know that people that get involved in climbing mount mountains like Everest, when they do, they get sponsorships. So he posed the, the million dollar question to me and said, if you had the resources to climb Everest, would you do it? He didn't say to me, would you think about climbing or consider mountaineering because I can see you've got the ability? He said, would you climb Everest? I don't know how many would have said yes, um, uh, coming from a background where you didn't even know what mountaineering or what mount climbing, climbing a mountain was or what Mount Everest was, as you say. But at that moment, when he asked me that question, I thought within, within 10 seconds, I knew that I needed to do this. And, and I knew that the reason I wanted to do this was to, to show how capable Africans are. So to, the answer to this question was, yes, I, 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 I'd love to do it if I get the chance to do it. And when I say that, as I say, I'd never seen a picture, I'd never read about Everest, I, I had no clue what Everest was, but there's something that I would want to share, which I believe it, it resonates with all of us and we all have that. And that is what 
makes us to decide to do things. And that is self-belief. I didn't have the experience. I've never seen a mountain. I've never climbed anywhere. I didn't even have the money to do it. But my self-belief was such that I could do it. And that's why I said yes to him. And that is what sparked the interest to climb Mount Everest. It was inspired by that man asking the question, if you had the resources, would you do it? Hmm. That is that is that is beautiful. And you know, fast forward again to you going into the climb. You've never seen a picture of Everest. You've never been there to see what it looks like. Did you know how difficult it was? Did you did you know what sort of like elements you were going to be exposed to? Yes, I did, because as, as soon as John and I started talking about it, I was, it wasn't like I was researching much about it, but, you know, when you when you hear about something, suddenly you see a lot um, of it around you, suddenly you see another article, and then you're, you're interested. So I started hearing about other expeditions that were going, and I was following as to what was going on, but even though I still couldn't fully comprehend um, what it is, this thing, and but then in 1999, uh, John sponsors me to go climb Kilimanjaro with one of his friends. And I say Kilimanjaro, it is not in the league of an Everest, but Kilimanjaro would give you the feeling of what it takes to climb a mountain. So it was perfect timing that I went in 1999 because I got high altitude sickness, as in to not, not the two severe ones, not the pulmonary or cerebral edema, but I was, I had the nausea, I had the headache, I had the diarrhea, I had, I was sleep deprived, I, I had the, the tiredness, all of those things that are, are very much common with my high altitude sickness. I suffered and it was like in a Kilimanjaro. So it, it, it kind of gave, made me to think very seriously about Everest because I said, here's a small mountain that has been so tough to climb and it threw so much at me and I had to really dig very deep to summit it. How much do I have to dig deep to climb Everest? And and, and, and so luckily I, I, I've seen that. But again, the other second advantage was when John finds this company that was going to put together an expedition to climb Everest in 2003, it was mid 2002, they wanted me to climb in the Himalayas because they wouldn't just take anybody or any African who's never climbed a mountain or see a mountain and sign him up because it was, it was their company name at stake. It was a reputation and they wouldn't allow me to do, to do it. So they put it as a condition that I went to the Himalayas, which I said, well, if if it will allow me the chance to climb Everest, so I said yes. And then I, then I went to, to Nepal and climbed not too far from Everest, and that was November 2002, and the expedition was going to be following in March. So November 2002, I see the Himalayas for the first time. I see Mount Everest for the first time. Everest is big. It's, it's enormous. You, know, you, you can't imagine this mountain that disappears into the clouds, and, and I'm standing at a distance. And from that distance, uh, on a day that we were we summited a small mountain, one of the ones I wanted to climb, summit, it was a clear day. And then I see the very top of Mount Everest from, from a distance, and it's huge. But instead of freaking me out, I see myself at the summit. And I take that mental picture, and I come back home, I say to John, I saw myself at the summit of Everest and I want to do it next year. 
and and that was that. So that was there was there was a day I summited Everest. The first day I saw that mountain, I knew, yeah. I knew that there was nothing else that was going to happen. I was going to stand at the top. Then when you, the next year, the following year, when you were at the, the 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 the. I'm guessing like base camp or getting ready to to go up the mountain. Describe to me the feeling that you were feeling. Were you nervous? Were you just more excited to get up? Like what what were you feeling? So so I leave I leave the continent and 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 I'm carrying it in, in my heart. Like I'm I'm carrying this continent mm -hmm. in my heart because there's a very powerful message that I need to share with the world about Africans. So this is big for me, and 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 this this thing inside me is bigger than Everest. You know? Everest for me is like this is the resource, but it is not as big. What is big for me is this, this thing that is inside. And I meet up with my team in Kathmandu. Um, they are eleven climbers coming from seven international uh, nationalities. We, we had Americans, we have British, Canadians in the team, Norwegians. So we were quite a diverse team, and we take the little flights to where we start at that village. We land, and I have no clue what's going on. All that I'm focused on, all my energies and everything that's happening around me, is get to the base of this mountain, and then you do whatever else you've got to do, get that chance, and then you go up, and then you summit, you go home. Anyway, it takes us 10 days to trek to base camp. And, and then after 10 days, we arrive at base camp. It's already well established. There are other teams, there are other people, lots of other teams that were there because it was the 50th anniversary. This is a big year that uh, everyone wants to summit this mountain. And I'm there excited to want to do this. I am, I am very nervous. I'm not, I'm not scared of the mountain. I'm just scared of this dream that I'm carrying within me. And I, I don't want this thing not to work because I knew what the questions would be like. The questions would be like, what was a black man doing up there? What was an African doing on a mountain? Because there are no mountains in Africa. I knew there were these stories that were going to come up. So therefore, that was the most important thing for me. I stand and I look because when you're at base camp, you can't see Everest uh, as into like the summit. You can just see its flanks and where you would be going, so it's not visible. And where that was good, we so to sort of paint a picture of how you climb the mountain. When you arrive at its base, then the mountain gets divided into four camps. There's camp one, camp two, camp three, and camp four. Camp four is where you launch your final summit attempt, where you just have that little ridge where you just go and summit and then come back down to camp four. But mm -hmm. the way you do it is not like you arrive at base camp and like, feel, okay, tomorrow we go up to the summit. No, it doesn't. It takes you about three weeks to four weeks of preparing your body and your mind and to adapt to the high altitude. And the way we do it is you climb a little bit up and then you climb down, you come down to rest. After you feel fully rested, you go up again a little bit further than you've been. Another, You stay a night or two then you come back down. So you need to do three of these. We call them rotations. So your third and final rotation takes you to camp three, which is about 7,300 meters. That's about 20, almost 20,000 feet or 20, 21,000 feet before you come back down to rest. And, and then you're looking for a seven-day weather wind opportunity for you to go for the summit. 
So every time I was doing these rotations, I was frustrated. I was sick because all I wanted to do was to get to the summit and then go home. But then I realized, or I learned one very important lesson there as well, that it's important for you to, to build your confidence and, and, and to allow your body to adapt to the altitude so that you don't fall sick. And again, it is also very important and critical to be disciplined to do the, the rotations because without getting done the rotations, you can't go to the summit um, and, and, and be safe to do it. So, so those are the things that I was learning that are much more life related. Anyway, we did the rotations and, and the, the challenging thing is every time you leave base camp to camp one or to camp two or to camp three, it's not plain sailing. It's not like it's easy going. You are crafting, you, you, you are working hard, you're crossing crevices and you're walking on big blocks of ice. They collapse. You hear someone got killed yesterday at the same place where you are, or sometimes you meet people carrying the body of a person who's died. So there's a lot that is happening in between this period that tends to ask you the big question, but why are you here? And I think that is a very important question because it's a question that can easily be answered when you're on the mountain. It's a question that you, you ask yourself on that day when you decide to go. You ask yourself, but why do I want to go? So when, when you are seeing all these things, you constantly remind yourself of why am I seeing this? Why am I shivering in minus 30 or minus 40 degrees when I know that at home it is actually 30 degrees, you know? So, so yeah, it was just that reason that is within you that made, made you to endure such. So after four weeks, we were fine. We were ready to go for this mountain. But yeah, every day for me, it was just thinking about you want to be at the top of this mountain. I can't remember much about what was happening because my focus and all my energy was such that I want to get that chance where I would go for the summit. And you, you mentioned a couple of things because I'm, I'm a, I work as a trainer. And most times when I'm sitting in front of a client, I'm trying to get them to connect with the emotional reason behind their decision. Like sometimes you, I say this on this podcast a lot, like, why do you want to get in shape? Then you get some sort of like fluffy answer. Then you ask them why. Then you keep asking why until you get that emotional reason behind their decisions. What was your why? Because you, you, you mentioned you talked about the top, you trying to get to the top. So what was driving you to get to the top? Yeah, that's that's a very that's a very um, interesting one. But it is also a very important question. When I when I give my inspirational talks as well, I, I remind audiences that for me the most important is to always remember that and the why. And 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 I've grown to understand that if we are talking about living a life with a purpose or living a purposeful life or a life of many, it can never come from you can never have a purpose, not unless you know why. Uh, so your why is, is the one thing. That's the one that gives you a sense of purpose. And then when you you know you feel that you are living your life purposefully, then you get fulfillment. So so but the biggest is to answer to ask that to answer to answer that question why you do the things. So when when to, my why comes immediately when John says to me, Would you do it? Then I remembered his first comment before he asked that question. His first comment was, an African has not 
climbed this mountain. Mm. So, so for my why then was, oh, okay, then you go and do it for Africa. In, in front of me, actually, just over there, there's a very big newspaper cutting that was one of the South Af one of the biggest newspaper uh, newspapers in South Africa. It was on their front page the day after I summited. It, it is written in bold, I did it for Africa. And that was the one. Mm -hmm. For me, that was the biggest thing. The, I don't think I would have gone to that mountain for anything else if I didn't want to do it for Africa. It was just purely because I believe in Africans. I believe in the continent. I believe in its people achieving great things. And it doesn't matter in what sphere of life. It can be in leadership. It can be in business. It can be in sport. Africa is as capable as anyone. And that was the message for me to say, bring a Mount Everest and African can climb Everest if they have the desire and the will to do it because they have all the other attributes and virtues like perseverance, like you know, determination. You've got all of those. It's just a matter of being exposed. And I was like, okay, now I've been exposed to this big mountain. I've been given the opportunity. I want to prove to Africans and the world and to myself that yes, we can do it. Yeah, that's amazing. That's beautiful. You know, and not only so after you 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 prepped and you went through the hardship of 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 getting ready, going up and, and being sick and all of that, explain to us what would that that feeling like when you submitted Mount Everest for the first time and being the first black man to do so it was a very humbling feeling and experience but i will i will share it this way so so we finish with our acclimatization we go back down to base camp we sit for about a week recovering and gathering all the strength and all the energies to want to go and we are waiting for a seven day weather wind opportunity and that would be about may somewhere because over the years it has been found that so at some point, some date in May, during the month of May, there will be that very limited weather wind opportunity, and you should be ready to strike when you, when that when that window opens up. So we were sitting at base camp, having fully recovered from the acclimatization, when they predicted that the first week of May would be very ideal to make a summit attempt. So my team and I thought. Brilliant, let's go for it. And we packed our bags and food and we got to we left base camp, climbed up to camp one, up to camp two. But in the evening when we, we, we were sleeping at camp two, it started snowing profusely, like relentlessly throughout the night up until the early morning hours of the next day, which would have been our uh, day of climbing up to camp three. So we got up at about three AM. Um, and went outside and found that there was so much powdered snow that had been dumped overnight that the, the surface conditions were not climbable. And, and that was the first time I would be exposed to because we went outside and assessed the conditions and our assessment of the conditions was such that none of us could climb that day. And I mentioned crevices earlier they were all well covered because we were crossing hundreds of them which were open, they were exposed. But after mm -hmm. a snow dump, 
there was nothing. We could not see where the crevices were. So it was very dangerous for us to go. And sensibly, the leaders of the expedition assessing the conditions said, we don't want to risk it. Let us go back to rest of the camp, and then we will reconcile with base camp to check what is the latest weather forecast. And the latest that we got wasn't inspiring at all because they were saying that that weather window had just suddenly been taken away. The weather had changed to a blizzard that will last about 10 days. So we, we had to cancel that, that time and went all the way back down to base camp, having been to camp two. So we set at base camp frustrated and the, the weather wasn't changing. It took about a week of just like sitting there. It was the 17th of May when the weather was given as a go. So my team and I again with other teams said, we're gonna go for it. And then we went and I thought the second attempt was the one. It had to be the one because I knew then that if we didn't summit this time around, we were going home and I wasn't going to be given another chance to attempt the mountain and send that message. So I was, I was a little bit um, upset that I, it didn't happen the first attempt. Anyway, when the second weather window was given, we were excited. We still um, just got back and feeling energized. We climbed up to Camp 2 and this time we went all the way up to Camp 4 at the, at the summit camp, the, the last camp. And it was on the 19th of May, and we had arrived about late afternoon. We were resting in our little tent, trying to um, rehydrate and get more nutrition for, for, to, for the start in the evening. When suddenly we realized that the, the winds were picking up. So because when it is, when, the, when you talk about weather on Mount Everest, you're looking at winds and snowstorms. Those are the ones that you don't mm. want, because when it is windy, then the temperatures will drop to like sub-zero to minus 30, minus 50, uh, like dreadful um, um, temperatures anyway. That's also, that's, those are the things that you're looking at when you're sitting in a little tent thinking about how it's going to go or not. So we realized that the wind was picking up and we didn't feel right to start that evening. So we stayed in the dead zone at Camp 4 that night. And then in the, in the morning of what would have been our summit morning, the weather was still atrocious and but until about midday in the afternoon but in the our late afternoon of 20 may the weather cleared giving us glimmer of hope we climbed that night to about within 200 meters before the summit and it was past midnight in the evening and that was the night i thought this is it this is the moment that you've been working for that it's so working forward towards and and then I realized that it wasn't going to be because Everest again stood up and said, no one will summit tonight. We were 248 meters before the summit. Um, then we got pushed back down to Camp 4 and then down to Camp 3 and down to Camp 2. And it was just heartbreaking to see that. Teams that were with us that night turned back and said, no one will summit this mountain. But we sat down at Camp 2. This is, this is me about to finish this explanation of what, what the feeling was like. So we were sitting at Camp 2 when our expedition leader said, well, we are so sorry that we couldn't summit on our second attempt, uh, but we had made the right decision to turn around because the weather was so bad. I think none of us would have made it alive had we pushed on to the summit. So it was a sensible uh, decision that we came back. But he said to us, the good thing, though, is that we have put 
most oxygen we got in our food to go for a third attempt. And you were saying to us, if you want, we can sit here and wait and then go when the weather cleared. But if not, then we are happy to pack and go home. And that's when then we got reminded that, you know what, it doesn't matter how many times we fail, we can never give up. So we said, we will stay, we will sit here and wait. And then if the weather clears, we go up again. After three days, the weather gave us a go and we went up again, still being hopeful that maybe this time it will be it. So on the 25th of May, I started in the dead zone at Camp 4 and climbed past the turning point where we got defeated about three days ago. And on the morning of the 26th of May, that message to the world that Africans can, if they have the desire, the will, the determination, the perseverance, and they stand up and fight against all the odds, they can succeed. And I stood at the summit of Mount Everest. So the feeling for me at that moment was such that even if it ended there, even if I just died at that moment of me standing on, on the highest point and seeing that I was the tallest person, it was so fulfilling that that was it. I'd done it. The message was out there. Therefore, there was nothing else for me. So, yeah, it was, it is an equal. I don't think there will ever be any moment in my life that would be like the feeling when I stood on the summit of that mountain. It was too emotional. I remember very well that I never stopped crying every time I thought about what has just happened. I think from the summit all the way back down to base camp, I couldn't contain myself. That is how, how, how humbling it was. And that is, how exhilarating it was but yeah it was it just it's a feeling that it would be near impossible for anyone to explain in words but it is one that will linger will live with me for the rest of my life and it is one that i will always treasure and i'm glad i was able to get that opportunity to stand on top of mount everest and telling the world terrible we are as africans it was very special for me to realize that here I was coming from the continent Africa and being the first black person to do it. It still means a lot to me today. Wow, that's amazing. And and you went on to do it again for the second time, which is even more incredible. It's, it's, it's such a, your story is such an inspiring one. And, you know, you mentioned something and you know, nowadays with everything that's going on, especially here in the U.S. with, you know, racism and, and all that type of stuff. Did you face any sort of like resistance? How how were you received when you decided to take on this journey? Yeah, it is. It is. A, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very complex one uh, because I think it it depends on cultures and it depends on who you meet. When 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 I we announced here at home that I was going to climb that mountain, so you could could feel in the air that actually the the message was, "Who do you think you are that you can do this?" We know other people of other colors and, and other regimes who have tried and failed, and who do you think you are? So so it was there was that. In fact, to put it like clearly, that's why I even couldn't get sponsorship for it, and it was because it was purely because. I was I was a black kid who, who had never climbed any mountains. And and in fact in my country that year, that same year, about ten other climbers, all of them were white South Africans, had a huge big sponsorship from a big corporate company. And I never thought that. Why? Because because yeah, we know it because because I was a black person, 
that had never had any uh, any climbing or mountaineering backgrounds and everything. And uh, and then also it took only two men, John and another person who believed in me because they were they were British anyway. So that didn't really care much race and about where you came from. They just wanted me to have an attempt on the mountain. So they ended up sponsoring me. But when I was meeting people, that's why I said it is into it is complex. It depends on who you meet on the mountain. When people were asking me, uh, "Where do you come from?" and and "What are you doing here?" they were saying it in good terms. They they were interested to find out. In fact, one person that also inspired me a lot was we were just checking into base camp, and I saw him coming from a distance. I saw him smiling uh, before we even greeted each other, and I thought. I don't think I know this guy. I don't think I know this guy, but why is he so cheerful? And then when he got closer to me, he greeted me and then and then he said, Man, I'm so happy to see you. I've been hiking, I've been climbing in, in the Himalayas. I've never seen a black person before. Yeah, it's good to see you. Where do you come from and what are you going to climb? So when I told him that I'm going to climb Everest, he was even much more excited to hear about that. So others were welcoming because they were like, wow, this is amazing. And we, we never thought we could see someone like, like a black person on a mountain. And here you are today. And then others again would look at you and say, well, you, you, you don't have mountains in Africa. What are you doing here? Go home. And it's, it's this type of thing. But but that that for me is is very exciting and that is what drives me. That's why I go to all these places. I mean, when I when I think about it, I I am I am still the first black person to have climbed the seven summits and to have uh, walked to the South Pole and to the North Pole. And it's just for the same reason. We just want to show that we can do these things and. And we're trying to bridge that gap because it's it's quite sad for all of us. I think for, from both sides anyway, because we, we also limit ourselves as black people. I think we, we've been conditioned to think that there are mm. other things that we cannot do. And and that's mm-hmm. the that that is that is the mindset or the narrative I want to to try and, and, and say, no, we that, that that thing shouldn't be like that. We we shouldn't allow the conditioning to linger on forever because that's going back to South Africa, as we said, that is what apartheid was trying to do to a black person. They were trying to condition you to feel worthless, to feel that you're incapable, you, you can't achieve anything, regardless of what sphere of it, of it, and even in leadership, you can't. So, so that is what they were trying to do instill in, in, in the mentality and, and unfortunately some some people are still very much colonized in that in that way that so mm-hmm. that is what we are we're we trying to do we're trying to vibrate sort of make it a black person to realize that they they are as unique and and they are as capable as anyone in fact Nelson Mandela again challenges me in this because he said I, I read a letter. I, I read. I read. I read a story where he was writing a letter to his wife when he was in prison, and he said, "You, whatever else you do, you make sure that you tell the children that they are inferior to none." That meant mm-hmm. that they sh- they shouldn't. And and in fact, when I met him, he said the same thing to me. He said, "Civil so your story and your achievement tells the world 
that Africa is here and it takes away the monopoly by, you mentioned by countries, say the Western, you say the Canadians, the, the New Zealanders, the, the Americans, the British, to think that they are the only ones who have the monopoly to, 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 to sort of pursue the name possible and triumph. And your story proves that it can be done by anyone. So, so, so that's that's the man. That's the message we want to share: that we we are not inferior, and we shouldn't feel inferior, and we shouldn't feel that there is some sector of sport or of business or or whatever it is that we cannot do. We can. It's a, it's mm. it's a matter of do you have the interest? Do you have the desire to do it? And if you have those two, then why not go and do that? That's such a, an inspiring one. I think when we talked a couple of weeks ago, I, I shared with you that I'm a I'm a big hiker. I love being outdoors. I love hiking. And I remember when I lived in Liberia, I was born there, went to Nigeria, lived there for like about three years. Then when I came to the United States, I was very, very interested in things that I didn't have access to. And you know, when I went hiking or kayaking for the first time and or when I kept going, I I, would use, I used to be the only black person there. My, the, my friends were all, you know, from like different backgrounds and, and stuff like that. And, you know, at first it was uncomfortable because I felt like, OK, maybe I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> But there was something <laughs> there is something we're super excited about, you know, just being there that it, it overweighed that thought of like, I'm not supposed to be there. And, and and this is sad to say, too, but and I'm pretty sure. And you talked about some people still being colonized in mentally. I, I even got some stuff like some of my friends at the time. They said to me, why do you want to do that white people stuff? You know, and, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy I didn't listen and I didn't like, you know, stop doing what I kept doing. And, and, and your story is such an inspiring one. And I hope a lot of young black men and women can be inspired by this story and, and then get out there and try new things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you're very, you, that's very correct. And you're very correct. It happens like that. I've done, I've done all of those things. And, and the one example would be, I did a commission a few years ago where I, we were sort of reenacting a, a scene where on Everest from my second climb, I, I was just left alone in the dead zone and I almost died. And so, but the advert wasn't about that. It just sort of fitted that there was the storyline that I wanted to share. And at the end, the guy, a guy that was talking to me, and he said, Civil Suicide, you've done all this stuff, and, and, and is there anything that you cannot do? So I said to him jokingly, uh, well, it wasn't a joke, but I thought it was. I said to him, well, I'm not the kind of guy who say no to any adventure, regardless of what it is, except swimming because I can't swim. And he was like, what? You can't swim? I said, yeah, <laughs> I can't swim. And, and, then, and then we put that on the commercials. There was a TV commercial, and everyone else focused on that. And, and again, the reason for me, for that thing to have had such traction was because mm. people, most of us, we don't swim. We we black people in Africa, we don't swim. We we can play in the river and we it's not like swimming is something that we really aspire to doing and to competing and everything. We can only learn how to swim just to survive. 
but it's one of those things that for many, many years was always looked at upon as uh, this is for white people. And, and in fact, in South Africa, um, they, we, 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 have, we have soccer or football and then we've got rugby and cricket. And for many, many years, football was the one that was predominantly black people and many black people would play that sport. And we all know that football is open to anyone that they can play. But the mentality was such that in South Africa, if you want to play soccer, you are or play any sport, then it's football or soccer. And then cricket and rugby were for, for white people. It took up until until the nineties when Mandela came out of prison to change the whole thing. Mm. So so the mentality is always like that. But while why we do what we do, which, which you are doing as well, you do feel like hmm, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe they will laugh. Even my friends will laugh at me. But but now I have grown to a level where I realize that what I'm doing, I'm trying to inspire a generation that does not believe in all these things that someone, some type of sport or activity is for a particular race. No, I don't. In fact, I was talking to another person the other day. I told him I was going to run this long distance in South Africa. It's called, it's an ultra marathon called the Comrade Marathon. And it, the Comrade Marathon has become so iconic because it was first run in 1921. And and then it was, it would have been 800 running this year, but some, some, somewhere in between, there's some years where they couldn't run like COVID anyway, we couldn't run last year or something. So he said, um, I want to, to run the comrades myself and, 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 and win it as, as, as the first, he's Indian, as the first Indian. You know, in South Africa, we've we categorized into blacks, whites, Indians, and colors. So the four races, it was like, it, mm. the comrade has never been won by an Indian. Um, so I want to, I said to him, no, 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 wait. I don't, I don't want you to bring races into India. There's nothing wrong with that. But, the way you should look at it is, I want to run the comrade and win it because other human beings have won it. For me, that is the key. It doesn't matter yeah. where you come from. As long as you see, the reason I went to Everest, people told me Edmund Hillary climbed it in 1953. I said, yes. If Edmund Hillary could do it in 1953, so can I, because Edmund Hillary is a human being. And, and yeah. I'm also a human being. And and then when I went to Antarctica, I said, Captain Scott and, and, and that Norwegian called Amundsen and all those guys, if they could do it then in the 1920s, because they are human beings, so can I in this century, because I'm also a human being. So the point here is not what an American can do, an African can do, no. It is what another human being can do, I can do because I'm a human being. That's a that's a very, very interesting perspective. And I also want to go into just to add and say that I'm sure you're really, I'm inspired by your story. I'm pretty sure that a, a lot of other people that might be listening to this will be inspired by this story. And you are one of Africa's favorite sons. And speaking of Africa's favorite sons, you met one of Africa's favorite sons, the great Nelson Mandela. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Of course, it's a story I love. I, I, I love that story as much as I love sharing about my story of my life in Everest. Um, so I live for Mount Everest. It's very bizarre because I was now working in a nature reserve in South Africa, a game reserve in South Africa, one of those big five areas where, where you guide people, you drive them. 
And one of the, you know, wherever Nelson Mandela had walked or had stayed when he became president and when he left, people went to retrace where he'd been and, and made sure that it was recorded in the history. So in this game reserve where I was a safari guide, we had one of the rooms mentioned as Nelson Mandela having come to stay there before he became president, just to sort of have, 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 have a leisurely time because it was very quiet, it's a private game reserve. And the guests knew about this because it was written that Nelson Mandela stayed at this lodge and he stayed at that house over there. And they would ask me, hey, did you meet him? And I would always say, ah, oh, I never met him because I wasn't here at that time. But I would like to meet him one day. He's the one of those people that I would like to meet him one day. And I knew, I didn't know how it was going to happen. So, so when, when I got back from Everest, it was within two weeks. I remember very well, it was on the 17th of June that I, I got this message that um, I had an invitation to go, go to Johannesburg at his center of, me, of memory because he had already finished. He wasn't president. He was all doing his, his work as a, at his foundation. And I was going to have this chance meeting. I didn't think it was real. And I couldn't believe it up until such time that I got on the aeroplane, flew to Johannesburg, landed, and I was picked up and driven to his, to his office. And so my meeting with him is we walk through the door. There is the meeting area at the big, big reception. We get told we must sit over there. The big cameras, I didn't know that they were going to be in media or anything. Big cameras uh, focused on me now when I'm walking in. And Nelson Mandela walks out of his office, and and unfortunately at that moment I could see that he was getting much more older and frail. And somehow I looked at him, and immediately my my heart felt very privileged and celebrated that moment because it said to me, you know how privileged and how lucky you are to meet him because not many of your age group would have the opportunity to meet him. Because I realized that he was, uh, yeah, he was at more advanced years. So he walks in towards us where I was, and then he stops. Um, and then I come to him, I greet him, and then we walk together to where we, we were going to stop to talk to the media. And, and he's sharing jokes and he's making it so relaxing and so comfortable. It just it made me feel like I was with a friend. You know, I just walked into a friend and all of that. And that was that was his, his power. It was his his way of doing things. He made you feel comfortable. And and I forgot that this was the man. Uh, this is this was the global icon that I was talking to. Then the media asked questions like how how do I feel to meet him? And I said, Well, I don't really believe it. I don't really know what to say. And I remember saying, I actually feel on top of the world again to meet him. And there was that. But Nelson Mandela then turns and he addresses the media. And then he challenges me because he says, we are very proud of what he has achieved as uh, here. And what he has done sets a standard for Africa. And he says, he has set an example, and I wish other young Africans can step up 
and try and follow in his footsteps. So that word standard challenged me when he said that because immediately the question was, you know, when you set the standard, you, you need to uphold it. You know, you must maintain it. And it's a question of what are you going to do to maintain your standard? Then he's the person that challenged me with that sentence to go on and do what I do because I realized then that it had such a meaning and I never thought about it up until he made that comment. So meeting him was such a profound um, thing. It's, it's exactly the same feeling that I sort of walked away with from the summit of Everest. And it's one of those moments I will, I will treasure for the rest of my life having met him. Yeah, it's unequaled and I'm glad that I did because obviously I didn't, I never saw any other opportunities or chance that I would meet him again. But it was so perfect. It was perfectly timed and it challenged me. And I'm not going to stop inspiring Africans and, and setting more standards and encouraging young people in Africa to rise up and be unique and believe in the continent and believe in themselves because of the words of that man. This is amazing. Your story is such an in interesting one. I could sit and, and talk to you all day, but I know uh, you're a busy man. But you do have a book, though. You're author. You know, I, I, I was listening to a, a podcast that you were on previously just to get a little bit of a background. And I did a little bit more research as well. Where can people find your Is it some, uh, at, on your website or someplace like that? And, and yeah, so just tell us about it. Yes. Um, so, so the book. Um, at first, I didn't think I was going to write a book, but yes, I've been reading about all these adventurers wherever they go and climbing mountains and, and Everest itself. Most of the books that I've, I, I saw, I, some of which I was reading when I was on the mountain, were written by books that had climbed Everest. And in a way or the other, I was, was reading and thinking, could I possibly write a book? But I didn't think I was qualified to write a book because I thought you needed some 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 type of educational qualification to, to write a book. You can't just write, you know, the people called authors and there wasn't one. But anyway, um so I got back home and I started sharing my story. And every time I shared my story, people would say, Have you written a book yet? I'm like, no, I haven't written a book. Why should I write a book? But luckily the one thing I'd done when I was on the mountain was I kept a journal. I kept journaling every day. I wrote about everything day by day, what was happening. It was there in, in my notebooks. So so when I when people started asking this question, I was I started thinking maybe I should be able to to write a book. But I wrote it on on a notebook and then when I met a person that one was going to my publisher, said, no, we, we would like to write a book about your story. I said, well, I've got all my notes here. They are here. Just go and have a look at them, and then we can start working on this. So we worked on that book, and we wrote it. It is called To the Top from Nowhere. And I'll tell you where the title comes from. I was sitting in Nepal in Kathmandu with a group of young people. When I was going to that preliminary expedition, and they were introducing themselves, telling me that they climbed in the Alps, they climbed in the Himalayas. And then when my turn came, my mind had said to me, you realize that we don't have the experience that these people have. So for you, Sibusiso, you are going to attempt to get to the top from nowhere. So I kept that. I said, okay, the title of my book would be to the top from nowhere because that was the feeling. 
And when my publisher met me, I said to her, I would like the title of my book to be to the top from nowhere. And she said, okay, we are happy with that title. And we wrote the book and gave it that title. So yes, it is. People can find it on Amazon, I'm told. And, and most people have said to me, yeah, so I saw the other thing that got mine from there. So yes, on Amazon. And on my website as well, um, there is a link that uh, you can go to and we leave a message there and then we can we can arrange that you can but amazon.com is that's where the book is is found to the top from nowhere I, i'm definitely going to be getting a copy uh, of the book and and i feel like this story is such a, a very interesting one i would definitely love to uh have you back on and and, and chat with you a little bit more and thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate you and hopefully we'll stay in touch and maybe one day we can get a hike in soon or something. <laughs> yeah, you see now you, you cannot challenge, you cannot talk about the hike because, because I, will, I will hold you on that one. But no, yes, I am, I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you very much. You're well talking to you anytime. There's a lot that we can talk about. We can just break one expedition after another. I'm sure you can come up with a topic, come up with questions. It's been my humble pleasure to do it because we just want to inspire a generation that never believes in limits and it is only us who have done these things that can share a very relevant motivation with them and if they see us and then they can relate to us and that's why. So anytime, I really appreciate it. And in fact, people say that you are a busy man. I'm like, no, not really. I'm not a very busy man. When it comes to giving opportunity, the, the time and the moment, I make the time. It's just a matter of planning it. So yeah, and the hike together would be amazing. It's up to you. I hike. I hike in this country. In fact, your challenge is you need to come and climb one of the African mountains with me. Definitely, uh, uh, definitely. That that's a plan. I, I'm I'm already excited. That's a plan. We can definitely plan that for sure. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very uh, much, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Anytime. Anytime. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye.